my grandmother was a reading specialist, and so there was always a constant stream of books being mailed to our home, and I loved all of the different types of books that she would send me, and one of the ones that was my favorite uh, was the story of the three little pigs told from the perspective of the wolf. And what I loved about this story is it turned everything that I thought I knew about the three little pigs and the big, big bad wolf upside down. And it reframed things from the vantage point of the wolf who happened to have a severe cold and couldn't help all of his allergies that was causing him to sneeze. And so in this version of the story, it reframed who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. In this story, the wolf was good and the pigs were mean and cruel, preventing the wolf the opportunity that he needed to uh, get some medicine. And I think the story that we're going to look at today uh, does the same thing. In fact, the story that we're going to look at today, the parable that we are going to dive into, is the most famous of every parable that Jesus has ever told. In fact, we have laws based on this parable that we're going to look at. But I wonder, I wonder if we have read this story wrong. I wonder if the conclusion that we've each drawn to this story is not the conclusion Jesus is leading us to. And so as we walk through this story, I hope that you will hear it again with new ears, maybe in the same way that I heard that story of the three little pigs and the wolf, and maybe challenge your assumptions about who is who and what this story means. So if you have been with us, we have been reading through the Gospel of Luke. We have these scripture journals that we have given to aid in your reading in your journaling and note-taking, if you have your journal, I see them in the audience. Pull them out. Make some notes as we go along. I'm going to give you some things to highlight in the circle. Uh, if you need one and you haven't gotten one yet, or if you left yours at home, we have them in the back. Feel free to stand up, move about the cabin, and go get a scripture journal uh, to aid you this morning. So we are catching up in our reading plan. We've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. And if you have been concurrent and consistent in your reading plan and up to date, you will have read the story that we're going to read. And if not, we're jumping way ahead from what we preached on last week. This is the start of a whole section in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus tells parable after parable after parable. And the reason that he uses parables, as Ali shared, is that it helps us understand the teaching. It helps us understand uh, the message that he's trying to communicate. And every good parable does three things. Every good parable that Jesus or any other rabbi in the day would tell does, one of, does three specific things. The first thing that it does is it aids your understanding of the message and point. It aids your understanding. It's a tool to help you get what the teacher is trying to teach. The second thing that a parable does is it gives you an opportunity after you understand what the teacher's trying to say is it gives you an opportunity to decide whether or not you agree with the conclusion and the point the teacher's making in this story. It gives you an opportunity to decide, yeah, that's right. I agree with this teacher's take on this particular dilemma or this particular issue or his answer to this specific question. And then the third and the final thing that every parable gives you the opportunity to do is if you agree to go and to put it into practice, to orient and adjust your life in accordance to the point that the teacher's making that you've agreed on is true and now it's your responsibility to take what you've heard and to do something about it. 
the best parables, and I think all of the ones that Jesus tells, accomplish this. It's similar to the sermons that Allie and I preach. Uh, the best ones actually inspire you to do something. The worst ones, you know, you know, I don't know what my batting average is, but the worst ones, you know, you leave there and go, huh, okay, well, where are we going to lunch, right? That's not the goal with these parables, and that's not the goal with the sermons. The goal is for us and Jesus in this story to challenge your understanding of how the world works, to challenge your understanding of how God works, and to challenge your understanding of how we're supposed to live our lives, and then to go and to do it. So, with that said, we are going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you have your scripture journal, it's page 82 of your scripture journal. We are in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And uh, we got to go fast today. I just realized what time it is, so I got to get moving. Y'all don't have anywhere to be, right? Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple little things to understand. A lawyer in this instance was a lawyer, an expert in the law, but not the political law, an expert in the religious law. It also happened to inform politics, but it's not a lawyer like half of you are in this room today. It's a lawyer in the sense of like a theologian. That would be a better way to understand who this type of person was in this story. Now, what was really common in that day and age is there were lots of rabbis during Jesus' time period, and they would go around teaching. And the people who had gathered around to listen to these teachers, to these rabbis, would sit at their feet, listen to their take on the Torah, on the law, and then they would ask questions that would help clarify either their understanding or the teacher's understanding of the law. And if you were a student educated in the law like this lawyer would have been, you would have tried to identify inconsistencies or gaps in the teacher's teachings or ways that you could better understand what they were trying to say. This would be our version of a Bible study, a little bit more interactive than this morning and other mornings typically go. So if you had a question, you would stand up and then you would ask the teacher the question. And this is what this theologian, this legal expert does. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the question that he's asking, we have a different understanding of what some of this language means. The question that he's asking is not how do I get into heaven? The question that he's asking is how do I live in the heaven that exists here and now? How do I live life to the fullest sense? How do I live the best life possible? This is the question that this teacher is asking. Because the, the assumption in this question is living in accordance with God's rules and God's laws allows you to live the best life possible. So he's trying to ask, there's a, a whole bunch of laws out there. How do I make sure that I'm living in accordance with God's laws so that I can live the best life possible? This is the question he asks. Jesus responds in the same way that most other rabbis and teachers would have in the day. Using the Socratic method, maybe he wasn't aware that it was a Socratic method, but he poses a question back to the student. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this type of dialogue back and forth 
that teases out our understanding of the application and the implication of God's laws is how these teachers, these rabbis, and their students would work through what they understood about what the teacher was trying to teach. So he asked this man, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this is how the theologian, the legal expert, responds. He responds with a, with a, a passage that every Jew would have known. Well, he responds in what's called the Shema. This was something that every Jew would recite multiple times a day, and it's the distillation and the synthesis of all of the laws that God has. And he responds. This comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he adds this little piece that we see Jesus do in a different gospel. He adds this little piece from Leviticus, and your neighbor as yourself. So the theologian, an expert in all of God's laws, all 613 of the written laws, plus about 15 or 1600 of the oral laws that were kind of created on top of this. So there's like 2000 laws he's synthesizing. And he says, all of God's commandments and rules and laws for our life to live the best possible life can be summarized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live abundantly. Do this, and you will experience life to the fullest, eternal life here and now. This is how you have the best life possible. You just do what you just said. And then... He does what most religious people do. The lawyer responds, and it says, desiring to justify himself. He begins to pose one last question to Jesus. And this idea of justifying is this idea of um, having certainty that you are righteous before God, that you are living in accordance with all of God's commands. It's kind of similar in... uh, idea to the way that you justify on a a piece of paper. You move it into alignment, right? You you are adjusting the alignment of something. It's the same understanding. We're trying to make sure, this man's trying to make sure that he is in alignment with how God is calling him to live. But he wants to make sure that the way he's already living is justified with his understanding of how God calls him to live, to make sure that he's already good. He doesn't need to do anything else. He doesn't need to adjust his life. He doesn't need to change. He's good. He's got it on lock. And so he tries to justify himself, and he asks this clarifying and follow-up question. He says, and who is my neighbor? Now, helpful context about this question. This was the theological debate of the day. This was the most widely discussed question amongst probably hundreds of rabbis at the time. Who exactly is my neighbor? If we have the laws and the laws tell us to love our neighbor, we need to be sure who exactly the laws are talking about. This comes directly out of Leviticus 19. Let me show you just a couple of sections of Leviticus 19. This is the point in your uh, reading the Bible in a year when you run out of gas right? 
you hit Leviticus and it just comes to a screeching halt. So I'm sure none of you were in Leviticus 19 in your morning devotional time today. So let's dive into Leviticus 19. This is what Leviticus 19 says. Listen to the language that it talks about, um, the way that it talks about other people. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Continues on. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. In the exegesis, the unpacking and explaining of this set of commands, there was all of this debate among the religious leaders around who the neighbor was. And so this is why he poses this question to Jesus, trying to make sure that he's justified, that he's righteous before God. Because the understanding of neighbor at that time period was your people, the people who looked like you, who lived by you, who acted like you, who voted like you, who followed the same rules and went to the same churches and had the same belief systems as you. Those were the people who were your neighbor. And there were specifically two groups of people who fell outside of this category that were most definitely, to all Jews, not our neighbor. That would have been the pagans because of the lack of their religious beliefs or the the extreme difference in their religious beliefs and a Samaritan or Samaritans. And we'll get to that word here in a second. And so in response to this clarifying question that the theologian asked Jesus, Jesus responds with a parable, a story that helps him understand, that will force him to make a decision and do something about it. So this is what Jesus says. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, what we need to know about this journey, the, the journey on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles and about a, a, a change of about 4,500 vertical feet. This is a picture of this road, part of this road. This road was also called the Way of Blood. This was desolate region where lots of robbers and bandits, land pirates, would have hung out waiting for lone travelers or travelers in small groups to pass by in the middle of nowhere so that they could rob them, take their stuff. You get the idea. So this is the story that happens. A man, a nondescript man, we don't know much about him, is traveling and then robbers fall upon him, beat him, take all the stuff and leave him half dead. And that detail is important. Now, the story continues. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, in the uh, religious and Jewish um, social structure, the priests were on the highest rung and the highest part of the social sphere. They were the elite of the elite of the elite. They were the leaders of the temple. They were the leaders of the feasts and all of the celebrations. They were considered by all Jews to be God's most holy people amongst God's people. 
And a priest is going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then the story continues. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. Now, this is important to note because the Levites were the assistants to the priests. All of them worked together to create and execute all of the... um, all of the religious experiences that the Jewish people had, from worship services to feasts to celebrations, everything, the center of Jewish life was around religion. And these are the leaders of all of that. But what it says is when they come across this half-dead man, they move across to the other side. Now, the traditional reading of this story is, ooh, what bad religious people. They're terrible Don't be like those religious people who move across to the other side. That's how we read it. We look at those religious people, the priests and the Levites, as those kind of people that we shouldn't be like. But what it would have done to the hearers of this story in the first century context is it would have created empathy on their part for these religious people. Because these religious leaders are following God's laws. Now, see, there are specific laws that govern and dictate how the religious leaders of the time interact with the world around them because they need to be ceremonially clean to execute all of the religious functions of the day. There are certain things they definitely can't do which would cause them to be ritually unclean. One of those things is handling a dead body or any type of body that has any type of fluid coming out of it. Large category there, you can fill in the blanks. Can't touch a body that's got fluid coming out of it for any reason. And so what these religious people are doing is actually being really faithful religious people. They are following the law exactly as it states. And so the hearers in this first century context would have been people who are trying to be faithful people as well. And they hear this and they go, gosh, that's tough. That's a tough situation. Because there were two categories of people then, just like there are now. There are people who take scripture and they follow it literally. You do exactly what it says always because that's what it says. There's no debate over that. These first two categories of people were known as the Sadducees. Priests and Levites fell into the category of Sadducees who took scripture literally. There's a a second category of people who take kind of the spirit of the law. They don't follow the letter of the law, but they take the spirit of the law. They try to understand what the intent behind the laws is. Those people would have been called Pharisees. And so clearly, this is going to be the next person who walks by. You have two groups of Sadducees, the highest religious leaders, the priests, their assistants, the Levites, and then of course, you're going to have the Pharisees walk by, and this is going to be the point of the story. And then so Jesus says these words. But a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were half-breeds. This comes from the history of the people of Israel. When the Assyrians took over Israel, they left a couple of groups of people there, two of the tribes, two of the 12 tribes, and they intermarried. And so faithful Jews looked at at Samaritans as these intermixed kind of half-breed people who no longer followed and were obedient to the law in the same way that the Jewish people were. And so there was this extreme amount of hatred and animosity between Samaritans and Jews. So much so that both groups wouldn't travel through the other group's territory. 
territories. They would go to extreme lengths to circumvent areas occupied by the opposing group. Now, for us today, I don't know what the best analogy is to Samaritans. But if you do a little bit of introspection, there is some category of people who you can't stand because you believe that they are inferior in some way because they don't follow the same rules that you follow. They don't live their life according to the same morality that you follow. They don't ascribe to any of the same value systems that you share to such an extreme degree that you can't stand them. It may be as simple as they watch a different news channel than you or vote differently than you. Depends on your level of vitriol for politics. That's a different sermon. But we all have these categories of people that we can't stand. And in fact, let's make it a little bit more personal. Maybe these people for us, these people that we can't stand are people who have been a part of our life at one point. People who we're no longer in relationship with for good reason. People who have hurt us, who have wronged us, who have betrayed us, who have abused us, who have hurt us in some way, shape, or form. They're the people that we will go to inordinate lengths to avoid. We don't want to be in the same room with them. If we know they're going to be somewhere, we start to get anxious because we don't like to be in their presence. That feeling, that feeling, this is what Jews felt for Samaritans. And so when Jesus names Samaritan, you just insert that person's name or that group of people's name. But a Samaritan, and he goes on. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then the story continues. Then he set him in his own animal, on his own animal, probably not in, and brought him to an inn and took care. That's a different story. And took him and, <laughs> and took care of him. Continues on. And the next day he took out two denarii. This would have been about two days' wages. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So you see the links to which the Samaritan goes, to care for this man who was laying there half dead. Now it's important to note, Samaritans observe the law of Moses as well, the Torah. They observe the same laws. They had their own interactions and interpretations of it, and they had a hatred for the Jewish people, but they... They followed the laws as well. And so what we see happen is the Samaritan violates the laws that the religious leaders weren't able to violate, weren't willing to violate. In addition, he puts his life into great risk by putting a half-dead man who's presumably Jewish on his own animal and taking him to the nearest town, which would probably have been about 12 miles away, which was definitely in Jewish territory. So you can imagine a Samaritan walking in to a Jewish village with a half-dead Jewish person on his horse he puts himself at extreme risk to ensure that the man is cared for. And so after telling this story, Jesus then reposes this question to the theologian. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And the conclusion we draw from this story is be the good Samaritan. Love other people who are in need. That's not untrue. 
That's not something that we shouldn't aspire to. But I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. See, he doesn't have a dilemma between the religious leaders and the Samaritan in the story. The dilemma is between the one asking the question, who's my neighbor? That's the one that he's trying to help him understand something different. We're not supposed to shy away from being like the religious people to be more like the Samaritan just to go and love those who are in need and who are hurting. Yes, we should do that, but this is more than that. Because when Jesus asks him, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is what the man says in response. He can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus' response is go and do likewise. What he's trying to get this theologian, this legal expert to understand is not that he needs to go to the places to look for people who are in need and who are hurting and to love them. That's already part of what this man understands about the law. To love the, God, love the Lord your God with your mind, soul, heart, strength, right? And your neighbor as yourself. What he is challenging is this man's underst- his notion and understanding of neighbor. It's not just Jewish people that this Jewish person should love. It's even the people that you despise. The one whose name you can't bear to say out loud. This is what Jesus is trying to help this man understand. All of these people who you don't want to be in the same room as, who you view as totally different from you, that y'all have nothing in common because they are so unlike you in all of the ways that you are good and right and justified before God. Those people, Jesus is saying, that's who you're supposed to love as your neighbor. The people that you can't stand. The people who live differently from you. The people who vote differently from you. The people who send their kids uh, and engage their kids in different ways than you do. All of the ways that people live their life that you have criticisms and opinions about. Those are the people that are our neighbor. And those are the people that we're supposed to love. The people that we can't bear to even be around. This is the point in my opinion, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is challenging our understanding of who we're actually supposed to love. You see, I think our nature is to set limits around who we love and how we love in ways that are easy and convenient for us. But what Jesus is challenging this man to do and what I think he's challenging all of us to do is to remove all of these limits and to begin to love in a way that leads to actual life. Now, we have some communion to celebrate, and so I'm going to stop there. But before we take communion together, I'm going to pray that God begins to challenge our notions of love. The limits that we self-impose, that we think, no, 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 God doesn't need any more of me or require any more of me than this. That we may have a more expansive view of who our neighbor is, and what that means for us to go and to love them. Let's pray. God, thank you for today and this opportunity uh, to gather together. God, challenge us. Help us hear these words and to make a different decision about how we're going to live in obedience to you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.